Open, shut, social distance or not, everyone has an opinion on the status of Britain's transport network, retailers and hospitality industry. But like it or not, businesses have to follow the government guidelines for reopening. We now need to stress that anyone who can't work from home, for instance, those in construction or manufacturing, should be actively encouraged to go to work. We can carefully begin to open parts of the economy which were required to be closed in a phased and careful manner. And I really hope that we can open zoos in a safe way. We can open up some more outdoor attractions for people to enjoy. On the 1st of June, we allowed car showrooms and outdoor markets to open. But can companies even operate under the post-coronavirus guidelines? To understand how travel companies, retailers, pubs and bars are coping with the post-coronavirus planning, we have spoken to Alex Jeanneau, who covers retail and consumer sectors at the IC, and the chief executive of Pub Group Young's, Patrick Dardis. We were terribly excited about FY21, and then of course COVID-19 had arrived, and that was the end of that. And later we'll speak to Phil Oakley about how the industry is dealing with the challenges, and whether the hospitality industry will be an attractive investment opportunity in the future. The Investment Hour. 60 Minutes of Money with the Investors Chronicle. So first, Alex, transport. This is uh, one of the sectors which has sort of been up and down. We have, obviously, we've still been commuting to a certain extent or not necessarily commuting to work. There's, there have been travel, but it has been travel, but it's been significantly less during coronavirus. We're starting to see slightly more um, travel going on. Roads getting slightly busier. Trains are starting to get a little bit busier. Are we going to be commuting as much as we were before? Yeah, it's interesting. And if you've been watching the government's briefings as religiously as I have, um, you'll know that every few days the government releases public transport information um, where we learn about the usage. And broadly, we are seeing a recovery in car travel uh, and in bus travel. Train usage has stayed largely static and, and low. Um, and the government has recently started to include cycling uh, passenger volumes. Cycling data is actually very difficult to collect. The industry is known for not being particularly good at it. Um, but the signs are remarkable. And I think we've seen as much as a 200% increase um, in cycling. Will we be commuting and how? Well, it's interesting. I think last night it was noted that car travel into London, for example, uh, on an average, every day normally we'll see about 100 cars a day going, 100,000 cars going into London. Um, and that could go up to 200,000. Um, I don't think it's as simple as taking passengers from one mode of transport and putting them, putting them onto another. It's not just a question of everyone who used to use rail will now be driving or will be cycling. Uh, there is a huge kind of a huge shift in home in home working um, that I think is going to bring down commuting volumes altogether. Uh, and rail is probably the most vulnerable. Uh, mode of transport here but it, it's interesting I mean we've uh, for those of you who follow rail you may be aware that the government has been well, there's the, the Williams review a comprehensive review into the future of rail models everything from rail franchising how these contracts are managed the government stepped in in March to assume all kind of revenue and cost risk and the rail operators have been paid a fee a kind of a fixed percentage of their cost base uh, to merely manage trains and, and I've been speaking to people in the industry who expect that the Williams Review could hasten the arrival of a kind of centrally planned agency where we're merely handing out service contracts. Uh, the franchising model is viewed as broken in many quarters and has been perhaps a victim of a race to the bottom where it's been less about customer quality, 
and service and more simply about uh, achieving costs. Um, well, yeah, this is a problem that we've been talking mm. about for a while, the franchise model potentially being broken. And what's happening now and what's probably going to happen in the future is that, yeah, that that franchise, a lot of the franchise model, a lot of the way the trains are run, they make a lot of their money on the peak te- peak travel times. Mm. This just aren't going to be a thing anymore. We don't... People who live, I mean, I commute to work on a on a train. Um, there's no way I could walk it or cycle it. And I wouldn't want to drive it because it, I, it would take me forever and it would be expensive and not at all fun. And I wouldn't be able to go to the pub. And I will, in the future, not be commuting at peak times because it, if work allows, which I'm sure it will, and those people will also be doing that. And I mean, then that revenue model, that making lots of money when people have to be commuting isn't going to be so easy for the, the train companies anymore. Yeah, I guess these are networked, maybe more white-collar jobs. There are obviously people who, who can't work from home and, and there will have to be routes for them to still arrive, be at hospitals, schools, etc. Um, but no, I think you're right. And I think it's also been said that I think the average commute is around nine miles. So, uh, you know, I don't mind cycling nine miles, although people have their own reservation about cycling in London, something we can come on to in terms of the investment that's going into that. Um I don't think it's really uh, a viable solution for most people to be riding 18 miles a day uh, to and from work. And many office spaces simply aren't equipped to support that either. Uh, so there are fears over congestion and how do we match up an expansion of cycling infrastructure with also a likely rising car usage. The expand- rolling out cycle lanes all, all, all over cities um, will probably inhibit that. So it, it's very interesting. I think it's there's a huge there's a huge amount to be answered in terms of the way that the UK sets up its infrastructure. And we only have to look to other countries. Um, Amsterdam and, and Helsinki are two cities that have been cited to me as being the very kind of leaders in in the future of mobility. Um, and we are way behind. Yeah, Alex, I mean, huge uh, amounts of traffic coming into London sounds like the very opposite of what, what we're trying to achieve uh, as a nation in terms of our uh, emissions targets. What, I mean, what, what's the, uh, the thinking being behind how we address that? I mean, if more people are getting in their cars, um, this is going to set us back a long way on some of the, uh, the, the, the climate change targets that we have. Absolutely. And the government has targets. I mean, it seems to move every, seems to me every six months. I think it's around, is it 2035 where there'll be a ban on the sales of new uh, petrol, diesel cars, or at least that's a target and ambition. Uh, I think, again, it will be about simply trying to reshape the world of work and to ensure that people don't have to commute and produce these emissions. I'm not sold on the idea that coronavirus is an accelerant uh, for the electric vehicle market, both on the demand uh, and the supply side. Uh, I've seen arguments about EVs could become popular as people seek cleanliness. They don't want to fill up. Whereas you have to fill up a petrol car in a public you know, petrol station, you can charge your car from home. That people might want to seek to preserve the environmental gains that we've made. I'm not convinced that those are sufficient drivers in themselves to go and buy a Tesla. And then when we look at the supply side, manufacturer uh, research and development budgets are going to come under huge pressure over the coming years. There are layoffs everywhere. There have already been disruptions to production. Scrappage schemes could help them. Um, they will still have to bring these cars to market, um, but it, it's, it's going to be difficult. And I don't see that coronavirus really advances that. Um, and then again, we come back to infrastructure. Uh, the t- I think the motoring trade body, SMMT, estimated a daily cost of the Treasury around £61 million. So where does the, how does the Treasury support investment in EV infrastructure in the UK? Again, we are behind other nations in that respect. I mean, you mentioned scrappage schemes, Alex, which was how uh, the government helped the industry out when, when we were in the last uh, financial crisis in 2008. 
is the scrappy scheme coming? How, how are the car retail uh, retailers faring up in uh, in the circumstances? <laughs> It's interesting, the conversation on the scrappy scheme has moved quite differently um, from the start of this uh, transport series that we've been doing. Um, and news reports had originally suggested this was something that was being seriously considered. Um, however, there is there are now concerns, apparently in government, that a scrappy scheme could do more to really kind of help overseas car manufacturers um, rather than our own UK industry. And so that may not actually be on the cars at all. Uh, in terms of car retail, Bear in mind that we only have one listed car manufacturer, Aston Martin, and probably the less said about them, the better. In terms of car retail, we have a fair amount of listed car retailers in this country. Um, there are a few that are kind of well-regarded and have done well. Virtu Motors uh, and Marshalls are two well-regarded retail groups in the sector. Then we have the likes of Lookers and Pendragon. Uh, Lookers conducting their own investigation into internal fraud. Uh, there have been merger talks of the, two, of the two groups, which are both cutting down their real estate. One view one argument that's been commonly made that coronavirus could have four retailers is simply fewer dealerships more reliance on digital and coronavirus has been i think a great opportunity to test um, the future of car retail the uptake i think has been better than expected i think motor point released a poll said the fiat 500 has been the most popular model for home delivery hatchbacks are featured at the top of that so again it might dictate the the type of cars that we buy which again may fit well into our environmental objectives Uh, people don't appear to be delivering range rovers to their homes what about the way we buy them a lot lot of new car purchases and used car purchases are financed with pcps um i mean is this this going to continue are we going to see more cash buyers i'm actually i'm actually in the market for a car myself and they i went into a dealer and they were really trying hard to flog me a pcp Mm. they did not want me to pay in cash Sure. I mean, and the PCP contracts, there are a lot of PCP contracts that are due to end soon. So we could see more stoke in demand. You know, unfortunately, coronavirus came at one of the two worst times for the car industry. If you were going to, I think it's Dach Gupta of Marshall's told me, if you're going to orchestrate uh, an attack on the car retail industry, you would orchestrate something like this to happen in March and September. Why? That's when the number plates change and it's a huge time uh, for car sales to the retailers. We could see a small uptick in, I think we're expected to see a small uptick in demand and already car sales have been doing well. They're ahead of last year uh, since they've been able to reopen. Uh, and they did sell during the lockdown period as well, by the way. But post that September number plate change, as the effects of recession begin to bite, I think it's very likely we'll see car demand faltering, actually. Working capital outflows mounting, redundancy costs, that sort of thing. So I, I think next year looks pretty bad for the car retailers and I think we'll see more consolidation. Uh, there's been talk of potentially a, a buyout looking at the likes of Lookers. Um, yeah, but it, not, not, not a sector I'm hugely bullish on, uh, but yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, my, my experience was that they were quite busy um, and that actually, although you know, uh, uh, online is discussed as the new way forward for the car industry, they're nowhere near getting that right. Oh, sure, for sure. Um, I, I, think, I don't know how uh, you ever get that right. I mean, buying a car, it is a big purchase. It's something that... Even if you are, even if you're buying a brand new car and you're confident that you're going to like it, it's still something that you want to go and check out, isn't it? Or at least someone like send your AA man down there to check it out. Like you don't, you're not necessarily going to buy a car just like that. And well, I mean, the amusing thing is that for the first time, people will be able to test drive cars without someone from the dealership in the car with them. So mm. <laughs> I think there's a lot of trust yeah. on consumers not simply <laughs> made that way off. Car theft, um, <laughs> suddenly, yeah. Like, <laughs> The final area of the travel industry, which is obviously it is capturing a lot of headlines all the time, is the airline market. We hear all sorts of sort of back and forth about quarantine or no quarantine when people are taking flights. Are we going to have a summer holiday? I mean, countries are starting to say 
come and visit us, please. I mean, Greece and Portugal are, are really rolling out the welcome wagon. But are we going to have quarantine when we get back from our holidays? And if we do, are people going to be taking holidays? And what does that mean for the airline sector? It's it's very difficult to say. And perhaps quarantine is travels one metre versus two metre social distancing uh, debate in terms of pitching viability against, well, you know, health concerns. And leaving aside the fact that I don't really know how enforceable it is to ensure that people do spend those two weeks on their own. The airlines have been accessing government financing. They're expecting to, some of them are expecting resume flights imminently, particularly the kind of low-cost short-haul carriers. They're going to be entering a new world uh, in which, as Michael O'Leary of Ryanair has regularly pointed out, a lot of European airlines have, have received quite a lot of what they call state doping, um, which could put pressure on them. Ryanair have access government financing via the COVID facility, but they're not expecting a, a bailout. I think actually, you know, perhaps a counter argument to put to you, you know, in the run up to coronavirus, we were talking a lot about this idea of, of flugsham, this environmental guilt around flying. Now, since coronavirus has taken hold, uh, the environment has very much made a decent recovery. Um, has this taken the wind out of out of that argument? And now, is there such pent up demand for holidays? Are people willing to accept? Well, the environment is sufficiently recovered, and I want to go overseas. It's been ages. Um, I think I think there will be demand for holidays, and you know, I, I, I think there are plenty of holes in that quarantine argument. Are planes safe? I don't know. I'm not an epidemiologist, but I'm sure measures can be taken. I don't know. The middle seat argument. So this is the this is the argument that planes should have to keep their middle seats empty was ridiculous. I don't think that makes any sense at all, um, mm. and it wouldn't be profitable for them anyway. But I, I you know I, I would not be surprised to see this quarantine rule ditch soon, an eventual resumption of certainly short haul tourism. With, with the airline sector, obviously, it was the margins and were quite tight anyway. It does this, even if things do go back to some sort of normality, do you think there's going to be a shift in the way that they, they operate and the, the margins that they operate with? Are people going to have mm-hmm. to potentially reassess their business models? Yeah, well, I think one, one key problem that they're facing is the amount of planes they've got. Um, uh, and, and you know, last year we had all this about the 737 Max and whether when Ryanair are actually going to get these planes. And now Ryanair have been negotiating, you know, to defer deliveries. EasyJet, the same EasyJet, uh, are, have been under sustained attack from their biggest shareholder, um, Stelios, who has made a lot of this four and a half billion pound aircraft order they got from Airbus. Um, talking about you know, Air, you know, Airbus's connections with you know. I don't know if we can clear some podcast, but yeah, they've accused he's accused them of corruption um, and also simply having too many planes. So yeah, it, it's finding a way, perhaps a more flexible model where airlines are re- relying more on on, lo- on loaning planes than merely owning them and parking them. We'll also see what happens with airports, um, airport slots, and that kind of thing. Um, it, it's it's I think it's it's very difficult to know right now, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, that's probably true of, of the entire travel sector. So, um, but yeah, worth keeping an eye on anyway. Thanks very much, Alex. So obviously things started to have started to reopen. Um, as of Monday, we can start going to zoos again. Hooray! And, and uh, drive-in cinemas. Hooray! Uh, Where, where's the nearest drive-in <laughs> cinema? So as the high street is starting to open, they are enforcing social distancing within shops. But... It does all seem a bit odd. We all have kind of got used to now shopping from home. I, for one, am not desperate to get back to a shop. And 
will people be desperate to get back to the shops? Is the high street just in a even quicker state of decline now that, I mean, it was already in a state of decline. Is it, has that accelerated now that coronavirus has changed our behavior? Maybe. Uh, I, I'm definitely not that in, a, in a huge hurry to get back to the shops. It's not something that I've missed uh, a great deal. Uh, the only shops I ever really wanted to go to before anyway were hardware shops, and they've been able to stay open as essential retailers, so uh, so that's fine. Uh, occasionally used to pop to Sports Direct to buy some sports gear, but I've got plenty, uh, and uh, so I don't, don't actually need to do that. So the one place I do want to get back to is you know out socialising, going to, to the pub and restaurants. So, so I, do, I, I can see demand bouncing back uh, on the hospitality side in, in a way that I'm not not convinced that it will on the retail side mm, yeah no i i um i agree and uh, i think mike ashley was obviously one of the more outspoken people during the early stages of lockdown and he's been sports director has been very quick to capitalize on on trends so their website at the moment is there's no football kit on the homepage of their website at the moment it's all things like tennis kit and cycling kit and fishing stuff the sports that we can do at the moment and so Sports Direct, yeah, they're really desperately trying to get stuff going again. I mean, that's obviously using online. Imagine their stores when they open on Monday will will be the same. They'll be promoting all the, the stuff, that the sport that we can do right now. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's going to be difficult for, for the retailers. And it has been difficult for the high street for a very long time. And, and maybe there will be some smaller independent businesses which just haven't got through this. They haven't had enough cash they've had to just close up and say and give up and say no that's that's it yeah i I definitely think for the listed retail sector you know this this is perhaps better for them than it is for the independents you know you Mm. can see lots lots of independents failing um you know and and the bigger groups will survive um i mean that's not to say they you know they don't have a lot of financial challenges i'm sure um they're not raising money and such like um but uh but yeah the 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 survivors i suspect will be the bigger companies um Mm. a consolidation I, th- I think in all of this that you know the thing that people have really missed most is is other people, uh, which is why I think um, you know unlike uh, the high street, which I'm I'm not sure people will be rushing back to. Um, people are desperate to get out, see people, socialise, whether it be in pubs or restaurants or uh, or, or any other uh, version of the hospitality industry. Um, and actually, that's been something we've been speaking uh, to uh, Alex Chano about, uh, and Alex has also been speaking to Patrick Dardis of Youngs. The end of our financial year is end of March. Uh, So March was significantly impacted by COVID-19 in weeks of closure, uh, but the weeks running up to closure was was heavily uh, disrupted. So, I mean, just to put that into perspective, March is one of our busiest months. It's the month where people get back from January, February, sort of uh, uh, the blues and to get back out to uh, going out to pubs the weather turns better Uh, so uh, we we, an estimated loss of revenue about 13 million uh, but it was more significant in terms of profit about 8 million so it took a big chunk uh, out of our profit numbers for the for, for the year purely because uh, we you, you start to bring in more staff for March uh, in February you start uh, you, you you bring it you, we had a lot of investments going on um, and we had all the staff and all the usual costs in the business so it's not surprising that the profit impact was significantly greater than the uh, sales figure FY21, without doubt, the year that we're entering now is all about disruptive through COVID-19. But we're pretty confident that when we get through to uh, April next year, i.e. financial year 22, that we will be pretty much back to normal. So we're just going to have to accept 
that FY21 is a year disrupted by COVID-19. So what did we do? Obviously, we closed all of our businesses on the 20th of March. We, we furloughed 90%, 99% of our team. Board of directors had taken a temporary pay cut and no, uh, no bonus. We suspended dividend payments, postponed all developments, uh, and just prioritized essential maintenance. Uh, we were the first company to come out and give our tenants, all of our tenants, a three-month rent holiday, and that was a holiday. That wasn't a deferral, so we've written that off. We're not expecting them to pay it, and we've just extended that by another month to the majority of our tenants. Moving then forward, uh, we're planning to open up pubs. We're going to open up pubs later than most people are talking about. Uh, We're we're, we're assuming it's going to be uh, one metre social distancing on the 3rd of August, and that is to ensure our staff and customers have a bit more time to get back to normal. Uh, they They will feel more confident and safe returning to our pubs. We may well open some of our garden pubs in, in July. We may not do because if you're restricted uh, and, you know, you, gardens are only good if the sun shines. If the sun doesn't shine, gardens are of no use. Mm-hmm. But also, if you don't have toilet facilities, if they are locked off because they're inside and you don't have loo facilities, we don't think it's responsible to open businesses selling alcohol and food you don't then were they then people you know have to when they need facilities so we are we're, that's really important to us we will be opening with table servers um order at table tablets uh we will you'll, you'll be able to order pay uh, look at the menu on the young's app so payment will be pretty much either pdq card or or, or the app uh, we've got a thorough cleaning and hygiene practices in place we will, menus that will either be non-existent or if they are, they were one-time use only disposable. Um, uh, we will have all the social distancing guidelines in pubs, uh, but we're also conscious that we don't want to turn our, we want to keep our pubs looking like pubs. We don't want, to, we don't want them to resemble an operating theatre. So we'll ensure and insist that our staff wear masks if they're travelling to and from work in any form of tra- public transport, uh, but in terms of wearing them in the pubs, we will supply. It is entirely up. We will treat our customers and staff like adults, and it will be entirely up to them uh, whether they want to use them, but we will certainly supply them. I've heard from hospitality insiders that pubs are perhaps slightly better geared to opening up uh, than restaurants are, and that there are concerns about the protection of staff in kitchens. And indeed, it's been said to me that chefs are in the highest category in terms of vulnerability for coronavirus. Um, what might this mean for the kind of stock that you have? Will that limit the provision of food? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about kitchen staff. So kitchen staff, uh, in the first instance, will be will, will be wearing masks. Uh, we will have to have less of them for the space, uh, and therefore we will have to shrink our menus that's appropriate, firstly, to what we can produce in the kitchen, and secondly, you know, we're expecting a, a much lower level of turnover uh, for, the, for, for certainly uh, the... For the, for the next three to six months. Uh, so, therefore, we will be shrinking uh, our, our staff in kitchens, shrinking our menus. We'll, we'll also be reducing um, our uh, uh, drink supply uh, because we certainly won't be ordering big stocks in because uh, there's a lot of this is unknown. We don't know. Uh, I believe that actually people, as soon as they can, will get back to normal. I think they will go back to the office. Yes, there will be more uh, uh, working from home, but I think people want to make that decision they don't want to be forced to 
to do that. Uh, but I do think that people also will be desperate to get back to the workplace. I think they'll be very keen to get back into pubs. And certainly, anecdotally, on the evidence we're getting from the three people who are working with us to uh, manage cancellations and bookings, there is a huge appetite uh, mm. to book up uh, hotel rooms. Uh, but, you know, all these cancelled weddings and all these cancelled parties, uh, they're not going to be put off forever. So, you know, there is going to be a huge appetite. Can um, I pick up on, on this social distancing rule? Because you, you said that, um, you know, it's 70% of pubs and restaurants are not viable uh, under the two-metre social distancing rule. Um, the UK has one of the highest death tolls in Europe on coronavirus, and the government doesn't appear too willing to back around. Certainly the scientists advising them, Catherine Noakes on the SAGE committee, said even a four-metre gap is, is no guarantee of safety, and there are too many cases in the community right now to consider going two metres. Chris Whitty, England's uh, chief medical officer, said that the two-metre rule will stay for as long as the epidemic continues. What makes you think the youngs can operate in a, in a one-metre social distancing rule? And if you aren't able to go down to one metres, how will you adapt, and, and yeah, how would you adapt to your operations? Yeah, I mean, we, we will we will follow the government guidelines. Uh, just to be sure about that, uh, we are we are uh, working towards one meter. If it has to be two meters, then we will we will adapt that. That's a, a kind of an overnight change. Uh, to, designing it for one meter, uh, then actually redesigning that for two meters is kind of an overnight job for our business. So it's it's not an issue. But we've got to map out and plan the business for what we think it's going to be. Does that limit the amount of pubs you can open? Yeah, it does. I mean, what's the difference between two metres and one metre? Well, you've seen my note. It's a million more job losses, uh, and that's a reality. Uh, A million more people will lose their job uh, at two metres. Now, if it's good enough for the Danes, the French, and the Italian, and it's good enough for the WHO, because the WHO's guidelines are one metre. Um, and there is ample, ample evidence, as you've suggested, some evidence from the scientists. There's also ample evidence to suggest that, you know, the chances of getting COVID-19 are, 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 with those social distances is about 13%. And the difference between one and two metres, uh, two metres is 2.6% and, and one metre is 1.3%. Uh, so the gap in differences is not that great. But, but I think it's not just about pubs and hospitality. You know, this is not about saving COVID lives of, because of COVID-19 or saving the economy. It's not, you can't choose. I think now the government have got to move on to absolutely save lives, but they've also got to save the economy. And I think they need to be really honest with the, with, with the, people, with the people because it's not just about pubs and hospitality, it's about people living, not just surviving in this awful lockdown. It's about people's mental health, well-being, lifting the impending fear of doom uh, and looking beyond COVID-19 at the moment, it's not looking very good. Um, and, and you do wonder, you know, how will our great NHS be funded as well as police schools and all other services when the, with, with the lowest level of tax income since wartime? Uh, because with business is not operating, business is not opening, uh, they won't be taking money to pay VAT and they won't be paying uh, tax uh, and their staff won't be earning money to pay tax. Uh, and I just think there has to be the balance here. Um, and if, it, as I said, you know, uh, we think, uh, and it's, there are, uh, there's evidence to suggest that one metre is absolutely sufficient. And, and if you think about one metre, uh, yes, 70% of pubs will be able to open, I think, viable. With two, two metres, it'll be lucky if it's more than 30%. Some will open, but they won't be viable. Um, and um, so I, I think that if you look at the general pub, 
there are only a number of a certain number of hours in any given week, and it might be two, three hours on a Friday evening, two or three hours on a on a Saturday, and maybe two or three hours on a Sunday, when pubs operate more than seventy percent of capacity. So actually, on a one meter rule, in most cases, you'll be actually getting what is in effect two meters in most trading patterns in a pub. That was really interesting. He was actually more honest than I expected him to be. I don't know. I don't know why I'm surprised that the chief executive of a large pub, pub companies, honestly, but he was quite forthright in terms of how difficult March was and how they, it sounds like they've just pretty much written off this financial year and they're looking for the next financial year as the, as the most, as, as a big one to bounce back from. The question that you asked, which I thought was a really good question, was the one metre social distancing and the fact that if that isn't allowed, so Young's is, as you've just heard, Young's is enforcing one, is hoping to enforce one metre social distancing rather than two metre social distancing, which is what's being debated by health professionals at the moment. Um, but if, and if two metre social distancing is the thing that's enforced, you asked whether or not Young's will be able to operate profitably like that. But realistically, are pubs ever going to be able to enforce one meter, two meter, four meter, ten meters social distancing? When you're a pub, when you're in a pub, you're not really going to be that conscious, and it's going to be quite difficult for any pub to keep that level of level of social distancing. Um, are youngs not just trying to be more transparent and saying, you know what, we want one meter social distancing? I yeah, I agree. I admire Patrick's honesty in the interview. Um, I do query the wisdom particularly in the results. So it was interesting when the results came out, we were also sent a big kind of attachment. Here's what we think will happen. One meter versus two meters and, and really lobbying for a one meter rule. Um, I do query, however, the wisdom of openly working towards a plan that isn't, that, or certainly at the time was not under serious consideration. We've since seen uh, the chance of the exchequer, Rishi Sunak, it appears to be the case. He's, he, it looks to be like he's pushing for one meters of social distancing. Um, but everyone else I've spoken to, even you know, Weatherspoons who've been who've not been afraid to kind of hide their view during this crisis, they're working towards two meters because it's it's what the government have, have have hinted at, and we can't know we cannot know how many pubs Youngs will open. We can't know which ones they'll be able to open, and there's a wild difference between Weatherspoons. You know, Weatherspoons saying we'll open two meters and it'll be most of of X, give or take a few. There's a huge difference, as Patrick has said, between the amount of pubs and the types of pubs you can open under two meters and one meters. Yeah, do I think it's extraordinary, do, yeah, isn't it? How yeah. different it is. What one so, so is it therefore sensible to put out that we are working towards a plan that isn't currently allowed? I don't personally think it is. You could argue that that's lobby pressure, though, um, because under two meters social distancing, they won't be able to get the customers in that will uh, cover their cost base. So, so pubs will simply close under two meters social distancing. So, so yeah, I, th- I think it is sensible to apply that, that kind of pressure to the government. And it does seem to be working. You know, the tide does seem to be turning on that view. The, the government openly questioning some of the science, the science itself being questioned more broadly. You know, it does, and it does feel like that, you know, the pub industry is a barometer of you know, the national mood uh, and, and, and how willing it is to accept these kind of flaky scientific views that are out there at the moment. Yeah, I mean, the one metre, two metre thing, if someone sneezes on you, they can be seven metres away and they have sneezed on you. But if someone can be within one metre of you and not touching you, not sneezing on you, and you're not going to catch coronavirus off that person who's one metre away from you. So, yeah, the science is it's not 
it's not set in stone. And it's, a, it's an issue that people are debating all over the place. We're taking science like it's 100% fact, but it's not. It's all being debated all the time. I think it's worth saying that the pubs are legally liable, though, if people fall ill and not just under. So we have kind of fresh coronavirus regulations that they have to uphold, but also the Licensing Act. If people fall ill in their pubs uh, and they are not deemed to have upheld social distancing properly and, and good luck trying to kind of judge whether they did or not, um, they could be on the, on the hook. In the same way, we you know see like the cruise line. So it, it, it's I, I do sympathise with them. I do sympathise with the government. It's, it's, a, it's a tough one. I would suggest that the public mood is very much look. Just get these things open now. Um, my brother happens to run a, a, a golf club, kitchen, and bar, and I mean the members are agitating uh, and, and trying to work out ways to, to kind of open up bars themselves on the course in contravention of licensing laws. They don't care. They just want to get out and they want to start living their lives again. So maybe maybe what Youngs are doing is is in line with the public mood. Maybe it's maybe it's a very good PR move on their part. And, and it's interesting what you mentioned in terms of extending that licensing. Uh, this is something that has been suggested that pubs and restaurants can make use of additional real estate to so things like car parks uh, for additional space. Uh, one consultant I've spoken to said that this, they've, they've trialed this for pubs and restaurants and it simply didn't go down well. Uh, this is specifically the car park. People didn't want to sit outside and drink in the car park. I mean, I mean, there's a pub up the road um, that's been doing takeaway uh, for some time now, it's an independent. Obviously, that the they, they kind of the pubs, the beers have been able to stock has been vastly different. So, just bottles of Peroni, and you know, I think I've done it once. The, firstly, the idea of sitting on the roadside with a bottle of Peroni doesn't really appeal. Um, but you know, also looking at the types of beers that will be available soon. So, city pub groups, Clive Watson told me that you know they want customers want fresh beer, and this four week, the four weeks that they have now, the fourth of July target will allow all the pub groups to do this properly. This kind of 22nd of June date that was flitting around and looks like it had been briefed to journalists to kind of test it, that caused a lot of alarm in the sector because they simply wouldn't be able to get the supply back in. The breweries have been um, obviously on, operating on reduced schedules. Um, so it's interesting. I, I, I don't know how permanent... I, I, I don't really see a future of, of takeaway and delivery. I, I think that's a... I think that's a stopgap and a way of keeping connection with your customers, if anything. Rather, It's than interesting, though, because, I mean, I know you say you're not like sitting on the side of the road with a parade doesn't appeal to you. But if we've got a local, it's, it's actually a Fuller's, um, they're, take, they're doing takeaway pints and plastic cups. It's thriving. It's at, People are standing on the streets. They're standing in the car parks. They are loving it. And it is doing good business. And that's quite interesting in terms of the extent of the damage that Patrick Dardis talked about in March if one month it makes that much of a difference, why aren't the pubs just getting some custom in right now? When obviously I know they are stretching the laws when they're, I mean, most of the pubs that are offering takeaway drinks are also offering takeaway food, but they are, they're doing something. They're getting some business in at the moment. I guess it depends where you are in terms of the ability to police social distancing. If you're in a built up area in a city and you're inviting loads and loads of people to come outside and sit around your pub, you know, bear in mind the lockdown restrictions have changed uh, over the period over the period and a couple of months ago the police would have been on you immediately it doesn't look like to be the case right now and on that note actually we're going to see again clive watson from city pub saying expecting uh, quite a bit of difference in behavior so uh, earlier trips to the pub perhaps earlier in the week uh, and also a different demographic and he pointed to the protests we see in this weekend that young people um, a lot of young people aren't frightened of, of proximity with one another so we could see uh, a shift in demographic in pubs Again, I mean, this is all speculation, but it's interesting the kind of people we see and what the effect that might have on the kinds of drinks that people are buying and, and what pubs therefore have to stock. Yeah, yeah. 
and uh and to what extent people are just want to as soon as stuff opens they just want to get back there and have a good time again and that's what one of the other things that the chief executive young said people have been deprived they've had 12 weeks of not being able to enjoy themselves fully when they are allowed to do so again is there going to be a big spike and is that big spike going to continue for a long time as uh, people people are sort of free of coronavirus and free of the the impending fear and doom is is what is what he said the other point that he made which was interesting from a a lobbying point of view and it does suggest that youngs are doing a lot of government lobbying is he's talking about about tax and how if if there is severe unemployment and he says that there will be massive unemployment within his own company if they are not able to operate under a one meter social distancing there will be fewer people paying tax. There'll be less money to pay these NHS staff, which we've all been rightly heralding, the, the police force, which are taking a lot of flack at the moment. Getting stuff opening again, including the pub sector, even though it may seem trivial, is extremely important to the economy. The, the pub sector is not trivial in terms of tax either. I mean, we, you look at uh, alcohol duty, it's about 11 billion a year. So this is a big number that the government cannot afford to lose, particularly mm. right now. Looking slightly further forward, his Patrick Douglas's view is that the, there's going to be a real shift at the end of the furlough scheme. So once the government stops paying these staff, they're all going to start opening again. People are going to go back to work if they if they can when the when the furlough scheme ends. And he thinks he's looking at November as as a re- return to normal trading. Do you do you agree, Alex? Do you think that's when there there may be a bit more normality in the sector? Uh, I don't know. It just I don't know what changes between now and then in terms of, of vaccine provision. Obviously, the infection rate can go down. It's it's how many instances and, and how many deaths the society is willing to stomach, and this is a, this is a new phenomenon for us. So, um, yeah, I I, I I don't know. Potentially, who knows? Well, I I know one thing for sure is at the moment the first pub opens, I'm in it. Me too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, you'll be able to join us, wait. Alex. <laughs> hopefully. hopefully we'll be able to get inside we'll have to sit on the street with our bronies <laughs> thanks very much Alex that's uh, good to talk to you thanks Megan so now we're going to be joined by Phil Oakley how are you doing Phil? yeah I'm alright thanks John excellent um, we've heard lots about the uh, reopening of the pubs industry from uh, from Alex Junio and uh, Patrick Dardis at Young's um, it's something you've written on uh, as well this week Phil looking more at the sort of uh, the economics of it all how is it looking I mean it's good news perhaps that the pubs are reopening certainly good news for me um, but you're still not convinced that this is going to change their fortunes dramatically uh, no I don't think so pubs are hardly you know making lots of money before all this came around. And, you know, if we, if we take pubs and then sort of throw in the restaurant sector as well, because essentially, you know, they're, they're part of the same same issue. Um, what we've had for quite a long time now in, in, in the pubs and restaurant sector is you have, have just too many, too many pubs and restaurants chasing too few customers. And... The, the the thing about pubs, I mean, it's interesting. Pubs is the first sector I ever covered as an analyst. So on on day one, in my first ever day as a um, as an analyst, I was I was introduced to the pub sector, and I've never really liked it from an investment point of view because it just seems to involve spending huge amounts of money on 
not not just opening new pubs, but actually, more importantly, spending money on on existing pubs to keep them attractive to customers. They they take a hell of a lot of wear and tear, and they seem they seem to need constant attention. The sort of time span of investment is getting shorter and shorter before you have to spend the money again. And, and, and Mitchells and Butlers have talked a lot about this in the, in their annual reports over the years. And you know they are they are a major you know pub restaurant chain. And you know they used to work on the assumption that you could invest in a pub or refurbish a pub. And that money is good for 10, 11 years. You know, their view now is it's six or seven years. And you get an initial, when you when you do a pub up or open a new one, you tend to do quite well initially. And then it tails off. So you've got this situation where pub owners and operators are spending lots of money to try and make their, make their pubs nice and welcoming. Um, to get people through the door, but there's lots of them doing it, and it's very, very hard to make to make good returns on investment from it. And you know, the coronavirus and the social distancing and the lockdowns just make this problem even worse because you're you're starting from a bad set of economics. Well, the pub sector has had a lot of challenges thrown at it over the years as well. I mean, even before coronavirus, things regularly came along that sort of knocked it off its stride. Uh, you know, the smoking ban, for example, or um, I think you mentioned in your, your column this week, you know, cheap supermarket booze. And I guess this, this you know, chimes with the, your view that, you know, this is just, they are simply not the best economics that, that you can invest in. No, I think the other thing as well in recent years that's really been tough is rising rising wage costs, particularly the national living wage. And you know, wage costs are about a third a third of turnover for pub groups. And you know, hiking up the national living wage by more than inflation every year is very very hard because what what happens is that you have uh, a cost base that is growing faster than your your sales growth and therefore it's very very hard to move to move the profits forward you know we've seen some very interesting developments in you know in the restaurant sector this week with um with restaurant group trying to put um you know 125 of its um Frankie and Benny's into a a CVA you know a, a, a sort of a negotiation with its with its landlords and its creditors to to cut them some slack because because even without the coronavirus these restaurants are just not earning earning acceptable returns well i mean we knew that already i mean you've written about wagamama for example and, and restaurant groups purchase of wagamama as a, as a as a kind of a, a solution to perhaps the problems it has had with kind of uh, its core estate and its overexpansion and changing consumer tastes. And it's something I wrote about in an editorial, you know, saying, look, the, these sectors were broken. They've seen huge bounce backs in their share prices recently. Do you think, I mean, do you think that's sort of over-optimistic, given what you say about the fact that these were bad sectors to begin with and, and actually coming out of coronavirus, things have got even worse? I mean, these share prices of these companies have been hammered. So some, some sort of... Um of bounce back, I think is is expected. I mean, I think restaurant group share price is up 
or was up as of yesterday, sort of 30, 40% in a month, but it's still down 60% year to date. But, you know, it's problems. It seems, seems to me this is actually quite a, it's going to be really quite interesting for, for, for people who watch the sector to see how this company voluntary arrangement um, works out because the creditors, the landlords, have got to agree to it. And I'm sure that there's, there's going to be a lot of them who are thinking that restaurant group is trying to pull a fast one here. In the and, and why wouldn't they? Is that they've they've got Wagamamas and they've got a chain of pubs and they've got some concessions in airports which make good money when people are flying. And it just wants to offload all the problem. It just wants to walk away. It wants to walk away from the the problem the problem restaurants in a CVA, and it seems and then then keep all the good stuff. And I think if I'm you know if I'm a major landlord, I'm thinking well, that's like have, trying to have your cake and eat it. You know, you, you you try and be in the position of a creditor where your debtor doesn't pay you, and it's not and it's not nice place yeah i mean i guess it's one way for this the the hospitality sector to fix itself but it, it, you know it, it is a question you ask in your piece you know can this industry be fixed uh, and i guess it's, this is one way that it could be fixed i mean you know if, if restaurant group is successful then you could perhaps see others following suit are, are there other ways that that the industry can can change itself to to kind of cope with coronavirus and the recovery from that better but also to kind of just generally improve the business model so that the economics do look better in future it's quite hard because I mean I mean arguably Weatherspoons has got the best the best business model in that it sells it sells a lot of a lot of food and drink. It's got big sites and it, it does a lot of volume and it makes the best returns because of it, because of because of that volume. And if we look at you know, if we look at retail in general. You know, this is this is a theme. This is a theme with consumers. Consumers like value. You know, you, only, you, know, you, you throw in things like Aldi, Lidl, um, Costco. We talked about last week. Weatherspoons. You know, they offer tremendous value to the customer, and they can do it because they set their business model up in a way to exploit that. They're very efficient. Um, they 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 run it on a on a volume rather than a value basis, and they they make their money by selling lots at low prices, and it's a very very strong business model when it works and and it does work, and it's very very difficult to to compete with. The, the question you've got to ask is if you look if you look at all the pub operators and you look at the properties they have. Uh, you look at the locations they have. Do they want to do that? And can and if they want to do that, could they do it? And I, I'm not so sure they can because a lot of a lot of the business model is based on again this trend. So you've got the value trend, and then you've got the premiumization trend moving more at market. So Weatherspoons is firmly at the value end, and it's you know largely got that sewn up. Uh, and then the others are either in between the two, or they're trying to move, trying to move at market. And um, 
that I, I'm not seeing anything, anything really that um, is saying that this upmarket food food push is really delivering for shareholders. What, what do you make of the space of deals we've seen from some of the sort of uh, integrated pub brewing groups to to either sell off their brewing operations or merge them with other brewing operations. Do you think this is a change for the better for some of those groups? Or had that integrated model previously offered them some benefit, which they're now losing because they have to, through you know for financial reasons? Well, I think it makes, probably makes quite good sense. I mean, you know, historically, brewers have, have owned pubs because it's a way of guaranteeing demand for, the, for their beers. And, you know, what's what's gone on with, um, you know, Fuller's has, has, has sold off its brewing, Marston's has sold off its brewing. And what they've done, which is good, is that they've, they've locked in a long-term supply deal with the new buyer to, to, buy, to buy beer or source beer, probably at similar prices to what they were making it themselves, give or take, you know, a few, few percentage points of margin. So they've still got the benefits without the hassle of running it. And, you know, beer, if we look at beer and brewing, you know, it, it really is a scale business. And you, you have this, this tendency to, towards the bigger getting getting bigger. And that with there are there are big economies of scale from having huge amounts of volume. You, you see it, you know, you see it in the American beer market where you've got uh, Coors and uh, I think is, is it Anheuser Busch, the other one. Yeah, maybe InBev. InBev, yeah. So InBev and Coors basically have got I don't know eighty ninety percent of the American beer market. You look at the UK and you've got you know the likes of Carlsberg, Heineken, uh, Coors as well, um, trying to make it viable for them by having as fewer fewer competitors as, as, as possible and it's um that is the way that these companies can make make a reasonable living and it, um i think for the pub groups yeah it probably makes it probably makes it makes sense because the the profitability of brewing is not that high um if you believe that you can um you have a you have a sort of a pub format or a bar format that is that you know, keep bringing the, bringing the punters in week after week. You know, you know, coronavirus aside, then they've probably taken the view that they can make a better return there than they can from from making and selling beer. Uh, but the returns aren't great anyway. But it's probably probably better than what they have. A bit, beer is interesting. The whole brewing process is interesting. We, we've previous, previously spoken, and I know you've written about this quite a lot, in, about the difficulties in switching back an economy that you've turned off more broadly. Um, the same is true um, in, in a sort of microcosm uh, of the brewing industry. Um, you know, pubs may want to reopen, but, but what are they going to be selling? And I, and I think, you know, something we spoke about earlier, Phil, was that, that, that brewing is not something that can be just switched on just like that. It's perishable as well. You know, it doesn't it doesn't keep forever. So it's not it's not something that you can have, you know, huge amounts of stock tied up. Um, you can have a, you can have a, you can have a little bit, um, but in in terms of the kind of kind of stock that you need to serve pub chains and, and bars and restaurants, 
um, that are up and running, you, you need a lot of production. And, you know, you have things like sourcing of ingredients, trying to run production facilities, you know, in terms of social distancing, it, it, it takes capacity out and it makes it, it makes it harder. So the pub companies are, you know, are, you know, are drawing attention to this fact that they have limited, limited supply for a while. It's going to take some time before before that gets on stream. It will come back. It's going to take a while. Whether it is a problem, I'm not sure because if if we if we have the sort of social distancing in pubs and bars, which basically slashes the capacity of the the bar anyway, you might not be you might not have a problem meeting demand from your customers anyway. But I think in terms of looking at how quickly these businesses can get back and start making normal profits again, profits that we were seeing last year. Um, it's going to take, it's going to take a long time. Yeah. Presumably the brewers themselves won't, won't know how much they need to be making if they don't really know what the demands going to look like for a while. Yeah. You know, this is, this is the whole thing that anything, anything with sort of manufacturing, you know, you have this, this, any business, you have an element of fixed cost and fixed overhead. And you need profit contribution to cover that overhead. And obviously, the big the big question will be is whether the pubs and whether the brewers can sell enough and produce enough to cover their fixed overheads and make it profitable for them to start up again. And I think I think in some cases it's very it's very marginal, and in, and in others it's just not going to happen. You never fancy putting any of the uh, the big international brewing groups in the uh, in the old fantasy sip. No, I mean I know, I know I know Heineken is Heineken is seen as a you know as a play. I mean it, you know I've got Diageo, which is which has got obviously got a fantastic brewing business in Guinness and various various sort of niche brewing brands in Africa. So there is some there. Uh, Heineken would be the other one that you would probably probably look at, and then maybe. I mean, no, I just, I just never like, never like the economics of it. I always think that the economics of spirits are are better than than beer, unless you've got a fabulous brand like Guinness. So yeah, but Guinness, I mean, Guinness is part of a portfolio um, that Diageo has with lots of spirits. So I guess, I guess you get the best of both worlds there. Yeah, but on, even on a standalone basis, if you look at, you know, you look at Guinness, it's it's pretty good business. What is it that makes it different? What Guinness? Yeah, it's just just. I mean, it's it's got very little competition. You know, it is. You know, it's selling stout. I mean, who else? Who else brews stout? I mean, okay, you've got a few Irish, Irish competitors, but in terms of the branding and the money that's been put behind that brand over years and years and years has built up such a such a position of competitive strength uh, and then you, you marry that up with the distribution ability you can't compete with it and uh, it's a fa- it's a fabulous f- fabulous product and fabulous business I guess it's what they'd call a moat an economic moat yeah I don't like I'm going off that phrase <laughs> <laughs> why is that because <laughs> they've, they've all been breached 
It's all, uh, it's all just, it's just a bit, bit jargony, isn't it? Yeah. I, I, I guess you could call it in the old, old fashioned language, competitive advantage, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Thanks, Phil. That's been, uh, been very useful. That's all right. Our hour is up, I'm afraid, but before we sign off for the week, let me just talk you through what else we have in the magazine. As well as no fewer than three stories on pubs and brewers, we have some great comment from Chris Dillo on building resilient portfolios, Simon Thompson on what's driving markets higher, and Mr. Bearble on the West's increasingly fractious relationship with China. And our trader, Michael Taylor, is eyeing up a trade in the controversial Burford Capital. It's getting busier on the results front, including updates from West End property specialist Shaftesbury, which reveals some of the challenges even the very best in the sector the retail sector of facing and full results from pub group Young's and car retail Alberta, which Alex has just referred to. Our investment trust columnist John Barron is back in this week and discussing how he's dealing with the challenge of finding sustainable dividend income, something Mary McDougall has also looked at in the context of ways in which retirees can fund an income shortfall. But the big feature this week is our annual Top 50 ETFs. Dave Baxter has run his slide rule over the ever-expanding landscape of exchange-traded funds to reveal which of them offer investors the best low-cost portfolio building blocks, whatever their needs. So thank you all for listening, and thanks to our guests, Alex, Phil, and Patrick. And thanks, of course, to Megan for her excellent co-hosting duties. We'll be back again next week. But in the meantime, pick up the magazine in all good news agents, all of which will be open from Monday. Or if, like me, you're not in a hurry to head back to the high street, get online and subscribe. Cheers.